Are you a scaling SaaS founder? Ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the Sassfield Podcast, where every meeting's a huddle and every coffee run is a blitz. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. How B2B SaaS founders like you grow from traction to scale. Here, growth is more than just numbers. It's about creating a future-proof company, premium valuation, and leaders who build a business of significance while living epic, adventurous lives. Well, we've got a big weekend coming up. Do you got plans? Now, a lot of you already know whether you're inside or outside of the U.S., but one of the biggest sports weekends of the year is coming up. It's the American Football Championship that is the Super Bowl. It's the equivalent of the World Cup to us inside the country. And football is certainly part of the excitement, and commercials always get a lot of hype. I mean, where it is this year, $7 million for a 30-second spot. Insanity. Yeah, some of them have been released early trying to maximize the impact and others will be kept a surprise until the game. And it's always interesting to see what happens and who does what. But my favorite part of the game actually isn't the game itself. Longtime football fan, but there's something even more. And that is food and friends, you know, cooking out together. We barbecue and, and do things together. And it's just having fun and the camaraderie of it all. I mean, what is better than that? And like I said, football is my favorite sport by far. But I really enjoy the human aspect even more than the game itself. For the players in the Super Bowl, this is the pinnacle of achievement in football. It's what everybody gets into the NFL that they want to do. This is the, the ultimate goal. And it serves as a powerful metaphor, I think, for the pursuit of excellence in business. The parallels between clinching the Lombardi Trophy and smashing revenue targets are striking with both arenas demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unparalleled teamwork. I think there's some leadership lessons in that for us, particularly when we think about winning new revenue. The first one is to strategize like a champion. And just as a championship-winning coach dissects past games and anticipates the opponent's every move, Sales leaders, business leaders, marketing leaders must craft their strategies with precision, not wild guesses or best guesses, but real true precision. Understanding the competitive landscape, recognizing customer pain points, and then tailoring your value proposition. It's like drawing up a game-winning play on the chalkboard. It's about being so well-prepared that when the moment of opportunity arrives, your team executes with confidence and finesse. Strategy meets execution. Either one of those alone just falls short. The second is agility on the sales field. If sports teaches us anything, it's that conditions can change in the blink of an eye. You know, a star player's injury or an unexpected play, trick play, can upend the best laid plans. And we've seen a lot of that this season. It's been pretty fun. But momentum can shift in a split second. And similarly, in sales and market dynamics, customer needs, competitive actions are fluid. Agility, being able to pivot swiftly and smartly in response to new information, not just pivot, but actually make a smart move, a good move to counter whatever the change is. And I think that's a skill that is crucial 
as a sales team, just like it is for an offense driving for the end zone. You know, it's about reading the field, reading the defense. It's adapting on the fly, calling an audible, seizing opportunities with speed and precision. And the third one is the power of teamwork. No Super Bowl has ever been won by a single player's effort. And I think it's a little bit ironic that, you know, there's an MVP, the most valuable player, because everybody is valuable in there. And I suppose, I mean, there are some people that do make spectacular plays. And, and so maybe they are MVPs, but without every player doing their position, then, you know, bad things happen on both sides of the ball. You know, it is a team victory achieved through unity, communication, and mutual support of each other. Everybody doing their role, playing their part. And in business, I think the same principle applies. It's the seamless collaboration between marketing, sales, customer service, product development that creates a winning formula. It takes all of those together, sharing insights, aligning goals, and rallying around a common vision. And that's what empowers teams to push beyond individual limits and achieve collective greatness. So we draw inspiration from football. You know, let the meticulous planning of a head coach inform our strategic marketing approach. The agility of a quarterback under pressure inspire our adaptability. And the cohesive strength of a championship defense drive our coordination and collaboration. Just like in football, preparation, agility, and collaboration are the keys to taking home the trophy. So here's to approaching our sales goals with the heart of a champion, ready to claim our place in the SAS Hall of Fame. Do you know what's even bigger than the Super Bowl? At least for SAS leaders. It's SAS Open. Come hang out with me and a thousand other SAS leaders in Austin, March 28th and 29th. Get an inside look at the future of software and spend time with the people that are making it happen. There'll be five stages with valuable content delivered in short 20-minute segments. Everyone is focused on a different role. SaaS founder, CMO, heads of product, sales, engineering. You know, the best way to predict the future is to create it. So come do that with us March 28th and 29th. I'll be speaking at a couple of sessions on slaying the five SaaS monsters. And, you know, I'd love to meet you. And we'll be hosting a dinner as well called We Love Bootstrappers while we're there. So check that out. Learn more at sasopen.com and use code CHAMPION2024 when you register. Save a couple hundred bucks on your ticket. Hope to see you there, SAS Open. Our founder on Tuesday was James Roth, Chief Revenue Officer at Zoom Info. We talked about how sales has changed, what is working today, and personal growth required to successfully transition from individual contributor to executive leadership. And our expert guest last week was Andrew Bartlow, founder of Series B Consulting. We talked about how scale-up tech leaders can be more strategic and more successful. Also got his take on building a contagious culture and the current HR landscape out here in Sasslandia. My guest today is Brady Jensen, founder of Aggregate Insights. Brady has a knack for harmonizing the historically discordant worlds of sales and marketing he was once celebrated as the Inside Sales Rep of the Year and rose to the ranks of entrepreneurship. He is dedicated to aligning sales strategies with marketing realities, ensuring companies operate on a validated research model, not just best assumptions or wild guesses. Welcome a man on a mission to foster collaboration and drive success in ways that fundamentally transform business.
Welcome, Brady Jensen. Hey, Brady. Welcome to SaaS Fuel. Hey there. Thank you for having me. Tell me about your journey and how you started Aggregate Insights. Yeah, so Jeff, I um, started early in my career as a salesperson. Um, was quite successful at it, but also had a really strong interest in marketing and product marketing in particular because of the intersection of go-to-market uh, between those two groups. So as I made a transition a good five years into my career from being a successful sales rep to being a product marketer, I found some things that made me really quite concerned. Um, I remember as a sales rep, come January every year, you'd have a sales kickoff and marketing would come and they would tell you a new way to pitch this year. And (laughs) they'd even certify you on it. And all the sales reps would kind of roll their eyes and not trust the process. And, The truth is marketing didn't really bring the receipts. So we had to sit there and wonder as sales reps, well, are they on the right track? I guess they've done their homework. They're the marketers. Like, let's maybe give this a try. But at the end of the day, the answer was always, here's the pitch. Let's certify you. And then just let us know how it goes in the field. Let us know how it lands with the prospect, right? Which scared the heck out of me once I got in the marketing side and I realized that primary research was not being done nearly to the extent that it needed to be within SaaS companies. A lot of assumptions happen, a lot of uh, internal so-called knowledge about the buyer substituted for any real rigorous research to understand exactly what the buyer cared about how they wanted to buy, how they wanted to be pitched to, what words they want you to use. Um, And I saw over and over this big risk being taken by organizations because they didn't do this homework up front that frankly is a very cheap investment in insurance compared to going out and saying, well, we've got 50, 100, however many reps that they have in the field and saying, let us know how it goes uh, we'll make adjustments along the way. Um, heaven knows, like it takes four, six months to develop this stuff. And then if you're wrong, which oftentimes you are, especially in fast moving, uh, markets, then you're going to go back to the drawing board for, you know, Q2 and then Q3, you might try it again, but it's still based on a bunch of internal assumptions. It's just different ones. Next thing you know, you're in Q4, of that year and your prospects telling you, well, let's connect after the holidays and you've blown through an entire year. And I've seen this happen with companies that are pre IPO. I've seen it with companies that are post IPO. It's a, it's a, it's a endemic problem within the, within the software SaaS enterprise software uh, market Uh, that just doesn't have to exist if we do it right and we go and we de-risk this stuff up front. You're exactly right. And not only is there organizational risk, I mean, as a sales rep, I mean, your income is completely dependent on marketing getting it right. So I I think this happens a lot. Uh, I suppose the bigger companies get, the more that, you know, headbutting is happening between sales and marketing and significant distrust. 
Yeah, sales right. is pointing the finger at marketing. Marketing's pointing the finger at sales. You know, these guys can't sell anything. You know, they're right. not they're not even using the pitch that we gave them. That's why things aren't going well. Right. And so how do we get to the point where we build that trust and bridge that relationship where it's it's not contentious, where it is something that is is working together? Yeah. Well, and in in my view, the only way to do that is through this intermediary that you both care so much about, who is the buyer, right? The end of the day, the buyer is who you both really care about. Um, marketing has a bad habit of not talking enough to the buyer. Um, so uh, that's where marketing can come in and make a whole lot of difference. Sales has some responsibility here, but I will tell you the number of times uh, that we've gone in front of uh, in front of sales organizations. And instead of the usual song and dance about the new pitch, we start by saying, we've talked to 20 buyers you want to sell to this year. Let me show you who they are. Let me show you what their names are. They, they'll recognize the organizations and say, I, I've been trying to get into that organization, right? And all of a sudden, they sit up, no matter how hungover they are from the night before, and they say, I actually care about this. You're not telling me your opinion. You're telling me uh, factual data that's longitudinal across all these different buyers so that I can actually apply this stuff in a real way. And in my view, this is where you take sales enablement from a nice to have function where you're sort of a help meet to a sales organization to sales enablement that is truly enabling them to do their job because sales can clearly understand. And to your point, you got these sales reps, they got to close their quota. They want to know, what do I say? What do I do? How do I get these deals done? Everything other than that is kind of window dressing. And so the research should all be based on that information is uh, so that a sales rep can very clearly have have a roadmap to pursue. Otherwise, they are going to go and they're going to pursue their own pathways. They're going to try things that have worked before at other companies they've been at or even within the company they're at. Um, I just just yesterday uh, presented in a webinar and we did a live poll and I asked people uh, how confident they were um, that their sales organization stayed on message. And 88% said they are completely unconfident. And 12%, I think, are liars. <laughs> so <laughs> at the end of the day, I think everyone knows this. Uh, maybe, maybe 11%. You know, we'll get, maybe there's the one <laughs> that are doing it perfectly. But I have yet to see a sales organization that feels confident about this. And part of it is that leadership doesn't feel confident about this. We have a sure. new customer we just brought on board. They're doing $400 million run rate as a company. And same guy who's risen up the ranks as, a, as and is now CRO said, all of a sudden, I don't know what to tell my people what to do. I'm, I don't know. I don't think marketing has touched the market enough. All of a sudden, we go from being this like one vendor in the market to competing with a bunch of different vendors and everything just got complicated. And I don't know what the right thing is to tell my own sales team to do. And in that environment, 
you're going to have these divergent messages and it kills a sales leader's opportunity to even know whether or not something's working, right? If, it, if you've got 100 people telling 100 different stories, then you have no story and you have no way to even go right. to market and say this isn't working when really it's probably not working. That's why everyone's sort of sniffed out the, the limitations <laughs> in what the marketing team did to that point. <clears throat> and that's why they look at it and say, well, that's your opinion and that's great. And my opinion's this, and I've been to president's club three times in the last five years and I know what I'm doing. And off they go to tell a story that they've sold before that, you know, also hasn't been validated with buyers, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. That's what makes it so hard. If everybody's doing something different, we think that we're measuring, but we're not at all. You yeah. know, we're, we're, we're sort of guessing at the, the measurement, but we really don't know what works and we can't find that pattern and really hone in on that. Right. So how, how is that that we solve the messaging problem? How do we get them to, to believe and then stay on script? And, and it doesn't have to, I'm not talking like literal script, <laughs> but we've got talking points that, that need right. to be hit. There's language that our buyers are using that we want to use and mirror that back. How do right. we get them to, to actually do that so we do have something we can meaningfully measure and adjust along the way? I think that the it's imperative that the buyer becomes the data point, right? Not a data point, not, not oh, we talked to some of our best customers who, by the way, bought five years ago and are early adopters and look nothing like who you're trying to sell to next year. It's who is your ICP? Who are these buyers? What are their titles? What do they care about? And all of a sudden, that being the data point that everyone focuses on, like you build this bridge of trust that doesn't exist in any other way. And, and it, for good reason, right? Like I had a recent CRO come to me and say, look, I'm 12 months into my tenure. We haven't figured this go to market out. It's like, I have six months left and I'm out the door. Um, and they know it's it, right in a, yeah. in a, in a VC backed startup sort of environment you got, you got a year and a half and then marketing and sales are going to make their best case for why the other one should be fired. Right. right. Which is <laughs> an extremely tense situation to be in. Um, it's interesting the number of times that my organization enters through sales because they actually have the biggest pain, which is uncertainty. And they're the first ones looked at when yeah. things aren't going well, when you're not hitting targets right. and all those sorts of things. And then they say, marketing, I need you to get on board with this. We're done being the test pilot for this stuff. We, they're the guinea pig or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. It's, there's a cost to doing, there's a cost of all that human capital going out and trying stuff out like you're, like you're a brand new startup, which is fine. Early days, do that stuff. Do stuff that doesn't scale. Uh, but when you've got people in the field and they're selling stuff, you think about just the fully loaded cost of these people, plus all the commissions you'd love to pay them if they could sell something, but that's the opportunity cost is that they're not selling, they're not making commission, you're losing good salespeople, um, right. and companies can sort of implode upon themselves just because there's no momentum, everyone sours on even the opportunity in front of them, start thinking, well, maybe this market's not as good as we think it is. Well. Chances are it's uh, 
it's not your market, especially if you've gotten to a certain point, right? Like early days, you may find that, you know, there's not a market opportunity here, but a company's doing 10 million, 50 million, $100 million run rate. There's something there. Uh, you're just not actually uncovering what's next for that market. Um, I always talk to early stage founders who we don't tend to work a whole lot with them directly, but I do advise them quite a bit and share with them exactly how we do what we do and tell them as a founder, your job is to do the first iteration of this stuff. And if you do it well, you're going to be way more likely to succeed um, as an organization. If you do validate all of the assumptions you have uh, prior to trying to get big VC checks um, and Eventually, though, they become people managers and they come back to us and we help support them because <laughs> they can't sure. forever. Um, and uh, and they need somebody to take the mantle and run with it and keep them current on it. Uh, and you become their best friend because they look to whoever this person is who is constantly probing the market. Uh, the number of times as an internal person, when I was uh, an employee, and even today as a you know trusted advisor to our clients, that they say you're the only one who does. You're the only one who knows this, right? Like the organization is running off of the information that's coming in through this, and the best uh, executives are taking this stuff and just cranking up their win rates and doing crazy things that seem like uh, they're sort of impossible uh, because all of a sudden they have the clarity that just didn't exist before. You mentioned something just about the, the ICP and, you know, in the early days it may look one way and right. and then you're maybe two or three years down the road and who you're selling to now is different right. than who it was maybe when you're looking for product market fit. Now you've really, you, you, you think you've got that, right. but, but it's different. How is it that, you know, you really make those distinctions and focus in and make sure you have current data for the ICP that you're working on now. I yeah. think a lot of people miss that, 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 that does change over time. Right. I think that there's two, two sort of ways to look at it that are important. ICP as an organization and then ICP sort of double clicked into the title. Right. So as an organization, there the segmentation is super important and thinking about there's a lot, there's a lot of really valuable information and in thinking about things in terms of sort of the bullying uh, analogy, right? Like you, you choose a pin to hit, but you know what pins you need to hit next so that they reverberate. Yeah. So that you get people who your next buyer will actually trust as a reference for you. So that becomes super mm. important. But there are plenty of times where you find that the organizations look different, the size of organization looks different, and going out and actually yeah. having that information, knowing when the right time is to go up market or to go down market is super important and, and only achievable by actually talking to these people. And frankly, not in a buying situation, but in a situation where they're a thought partner with you and they want to talk shop and they want to tell you what they're thinking about what the rest of their peers are talking about um, so that you can, you can start to plot your own path. Now on the title front, it's uh, often a question of, you know, early days you were trying to get 
one, you're trying to pick off one person who probably doesn't have a whole lot of budget, but they're really interested and they're an early adopter and they're super excited about new technology. And now you have to look at it and say, well, we're now in a complex sale and we have to get procurement on board and we've got to get the CFO because of economic climate and we've got to get their, you know, three other lines of business all lined up. So understanding how these deals get done in reality and not just like what does a company tell you there's their buying process is, but like how does it actually work in re, in uh, in reality? What are the politics yeah. you weave through a deal? Because these people will share this information and they've done it a number of times. They know how to go about doing it. I think it's always helpful to uncover a buyer's ideal way of buying uh, because you want to appeal to that, but it's probably even more important to uncover the way they have to buy, which is never, it's never, it's always somewhere in between their ideal and what the company says the process is to buy. It's never one or the other, right? Um, when you, when you get a deal done, there's a whole lot of internal, horse trading and stuff like that, that you don't get to see in any other way. And, uh, the number right. of, we do a lot of win loss, uh, work as well. And when we talk to buyers, there's a huge gap between how even the seller thinks they got a deal done <laughs> and how a deal actually got done. Um, or the, they think a deal could have gotten done, but they didn't, they didn't get selected where if they did know, the process uh, ahead of time, they could have done a much better job of preparing themselves to win the deal. So um, there's a lot of things around ICP when it comes to identifying where you need to be hunting, who your entry point is, who the other players are, who's going to block you, who's going to be your friend, how do you enable the champion within an organization, all this stuff. It's super complicated uh, when you sort of envision all of these different pieces moving but if you do a good job up front you can condense this down into a very clear playbook of how to actually go about um, prosecuting your own deals in a way that will give you the best chance of winning on average uh, across any organization like that you mentioned something that i think is really interesting and that is talking to them not in a buying scenario but as a thought partner Right. Can you expound on that a little bit? And are, are you getting different answers in the, the buying cycle than you would if you're having a conversation outside of those kinds of pressures? Absolutely. I think that there's there's an inherent dynamic to a buying and selling um, situation, right? Where no one wants to completely put their cards on the table. No one wants to completely show their hand and say, this is how I want this to and this is how much I would pay for it. And this is how much you're going to get from me and all that stuff, right? It's a, it's a give and take sort of relationship, even if it's, it's highly consequential and not just a transactional sale. And maybe even more so if it's not transactional, it is this dance of information asymmetry between the two or uh, between the seller and the buyer where neither of them want full transparency in that process. And then even after the fact, you know, if a sales rep or even someone internally goes and says, 
why didn't you choose us? Well, now they have a relationship. They've worked with these guys for six months. They don't want to, they don't want to tell them their baby's ugly. So they sort of right, right. It, <laughs> nice things and, and give easy answers that allow people to sort of lick their wounds and move on with their day where, um, in reality, the onion peeled back three or four layers reveals a whole lot more rich and actionable information that you can do something with. A lot of times, if you go and get this information at a surface level, great. Now what, right? Like I can't, we can't make product decisions on this. We can't make like broad go to market decisions based on this because it's, you lost because of price. You didn't have one feature. No, like that's not why you did or didn't win a deal. Um, right. But it's also impossible to use that information to actually optimize the way that you go about selling or going to market. Where if you do get the in-depth information, uh, number one, it's 95% different <laughs> than what you hear uh, if it isn't a buying cycle. Um, and number two, it's actually something you can use. So how do we get that type of, of Intel? How do we get down below the surface and go deeper in those questions and, and really have a, a real conversation with buyers, whether they are, you know, post if it's deals that we lost or if it's just having those market conversations, mm-hmm. what is it that we can do to, to get down multiple levels? You said three levels deep. How yeah. do we get there? From my perspective, it's all about sort of, uh, building a conversation that looks like an hourglass. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Conversations rarely, uh, or or should I say, uh, substantive conversations rarely start out as substantive conversations, right? The same way as a great interviewer um, in journalism isn't going to go for the, for the, meet immediately or like ask the controversial question as question one you have to build some rapport you have to ask some questions that are that are innocuous that feel very um safe to answer but as you get further i always think about it like i said an hourglass where you ask the generalities and as you get uh further into the conversation you get tighter and tighter in your answers and people have, at this point, started to feel comfortable sharing this information with you. And then at the end of the conversation, you broaden it back out. Everybody leaves the conversation. And as I think many people know, but uh, maybe don't recognize in this context, people remember the f- the first of conversations and the last of conversations and the first of books and the last and <laughs> the end of books, right? Like, right. Right. They go in not even realizing just how deep into your psyche, into their psyche, you have dug <laughs> because because you uh, you had very pleasant conversation at the front, at the at the end, and in the middle you got real serious with them, and they started to share the stuff that maybe isn't as pleasant to share. Um, that's how I train my people to do it. Is it's. You know, a huge part of it is getting the right people at the right time to have these conversations. But once you have them, if you if you run those conversations in an improper way, it can be worse than not doing them at all, frankly, right? Because you can get a whole lot of signals that say, we're awesome, everything's great, people love us. It's like when a customer says, 
oh yeah, you guys are great. We're totally happy. And then they churn, right? And you're like, how? Yeah. Right? Well, if you had a, <laughs> what that, happened? You find out that maybe there's more to the story than just we're fine. It's sort of like the customer in my mind that if a customer's complaining, that means they're engaged. You got a shot at winning additional business or continuing your relationship. If they're fine and don't ever want to talk to you, it's a huge risk, right? And the same with the sure. with these market conversations. If you only get to the, this is what Gartner told us, this is what Forrester told us. We think that like, you know, we think that we buy based on on cost and ROI or whatever. Yeah. That's true, but that's not really what's making or breaking deals. So unless you get down to stuff that's more meaty, you're either going to be able to make no decisions based on the information that you've been given uh, that actually affect your strategy, or you're going to make decisions based on this rosy, rose-colored glasses environment that you think you're working in because you really didn't get into the uh, to the more uncomfortable or uh, controversial topics. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you navigate different priorities and metrics of, of sales and marketing? Cause they're, they're measured differently. The things that they're looking for are differently and how do we align those toward common goals? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think that the, the, the system of MQLs and, you know, sales, accepted leads and stages are nearly as important as the intersecting points between the organizations, right? Like you can, every marketing leader and sales leader will have a slightly different take on the buyer journey and the stages and when one crosses from one to the next and what qualifies as a attributable qualified lead and all this stuff. At the end of the day, I think it's really about any measuring and and paying attention and managing the in, the the intersection where any handoff occurs um, and getting really good at that component of it. And the thing is, like I think the, the same the same as sort of we talked about buyers and sellers and them having like this in some ways a healthy tension, but in some ways unhealthy tension, right? You have, you have very yeah, similar dynamic yeah. sales and marketing where if the trust isn't there, it doesn't matter how well you build the uh, structure or the process or any of that stuff. It's really about how do you make sure that, that the, the trust exists so that when something does get handed from one part of the organization to another, that everyone trusts that the other people did their job, <laughs> that they that they're all uh, they all have a common goal. Um, so to me, I'm not as focused on how do we. Uh, I'll leave that to the marketing and sales ops folks to get real good at that. But I think from a marketing perspective and a sales perspective, the more marketing can help bring receipts, the more. And that's the same reason why I say, tell them how many people you talk to, show them their names, show them their pictures, let them see that these are actual live bodies and not some secondary research or internal, you know, uh, perspectives. 
that to me is worth documenting more so than just about anything. In in marketing organizations, you often see um, the metric being more around how many assets did we create, right? Like I've, I've right, been right. organizations where the leadership, that's the one thing they talk about every week is we built six new one pagers and we revised <laughs> two of these and here's a new customer story and you're like drowning in content, right? Right. Where really, if you have core assets and you can tell them, we had five new prospect conversations this week and we've adjusted the assets to a, to uh, account for XYZ that we're seeing as a recurring theme across all these, uh, all these people. I think that's where it makes a whole lot of sense to spend your time and effort and justify the work that you're doing. It's funny. I was talking to a CMO of a, of a big bank and she had said, she's like, I don't, I think mark, I think my marketers are scared to talk to buyers. Mm. And I, I don't know if it's, I don't know if they're scared. I know that they're not necessarily prepared because in my practice, we oftentimes uh, hire people who come from a marketing background, and and every time I have to take into account that they will need to be trained on all of this. They could be a VP level person. They will come in and they will say, "All right, I'm bought into the vision. How do we do it?" <laughs> right. So <laughs> there's a lot of work to be done in like building actual muscle memory of how to make a marketing organization data driven in the right way, right? Like, or not the right way. I, I, I don't want to overstep, right? Because you've got like demand gen people, they focused a lot on metrics, right? And sure. they're really good at it. And then the other side are the creatives and they think of themselves as we're the creative writers of the group and we're, you know, we don't really need to be metric driven or they say, well, we're close to mar- sales. So we need to like be responsible for like some sort of revenue number. Well, do you really want to be responsible for a revenue number? If you're making a bunch of guesses with all the content, like I wouldn't the same way as, right, your, right. as your growth marketers will come to us and say, we're so happy that you guys are doing this for us because they don't want to be responsible for how ads are performing in market if what they're being told to put in the ads is a bunch of guesses, right? So, right. so that the same way, like the in within marketing, there's this same feeling of like, guys, let's stop making making a hypothesis and just run with it. It's like developing a drug and never putting it through trials. You're just like, well, we'll see how it goes in market. See if <laughs> you know how many people live, right? Like there's so much we can take from from different industries as well. Like consumer, God, they they do so 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 much research, and yes, they sell to millions, and they can do quant work that will show a bunch of awesome graphs and charts and sell the story in a way that maybe you can't if you're selling enterprise software. But abandoning the research because you're not going to get to to statistically significant numbers when the research still shows that if you talk to 15 buyers, you're going to have a very, uh, you're going to hit a point where every additional buyer may provide a bit of a 
bump in your understanding about who they are, but you're not going, but it's not going to uh, continue to create the same returns. Um, if you keep going, not to say you can't, but you don't have to, like, you don't need massive numbers to actually make this stuff work and plot out exactly how your buyer wants to buy. So I would say, you know, let's, let's steal from these other places where they've made this a science. Um, I am shocked by how controversial it is to buy to, to my buyers sometimes. So when I say, guys, you should be doing this. And they're like, well, we, that's not how we operate. And I'm like, why? <laughs> right? <laughs> and then I'll oftentimes I'll say, okay, well, Oh, like, why don't you go ask your people who are selling, uh, or excuse me, you're, why don't you go ask your people who built your positioning? Just go ask them how they made the document, right? And it doesn't take long for them to come back to me and they're like, we're screwed. <laughs> like, yes. They, we, we built it in an hour and a half in a conference room based on like what we thought sounded good, you know, and that's right. like universal almost in in the response that i get from companies it's very safe for me with our own prospects to say go ask them how they built it and they come back and they're like this is not sufficient <laughs> like we spend <laughs> budget we spend so much sales budget and yet the one area where we can take some insurance out and actually like validate it first is not we're not taking out the insurance so that's so true and uh, you know, and that happens in small companies. It happens in, in big companies. And I think the the bigger they are, the the more sophisticated maybe they think they oh. are. But it's still. I mean, I learned a marketing term a long time ago. I mean, it's you know, how did you build it? Well, we have this process called swag. It's a swinging wild ass guess. And uh, and that's you know, and there, there's a lot of that going on. You know, just yep. you put an MBA term around it. Oh, okay, yeah, okay, we got a swag process. And it, it is it, it, it's, it's hard. It is no, uh, I, I mean, no, no disrespect to our clients that are very large because uh, they're very good at what they do, but the bar yes. in some cases is even lower. Um, and we look really good because it becomes a situation where we have 10 products and we've got a, and we've got 50 personas we sell to, and it's a matrixed organization and nobody's figured out how to boil this down in a way that's even containable. So it's not their yeah. fault, but right. they do tend to be the bigger you get, the more complicated it can be. And unless you have a guide to be like, let's take all this complexity and, and distill it and simplify it into something that can actually be used uh, to good effect uh, but yeah, companies, we work with companies, 20,000 plus employees, and they have the same problems. They just have them in bigger numbers and have bigger risks, right? They're taking swings with, with many more millions of dollars when they take this, this wild ass guess, right? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, um, but no matter wh where you're playing, right, it's, it's all sort of a, uh, a, a function of of what resources are at your disposal. If you've raised ten million dollars and you're risking five, <laughs> you're you're uh, just as much risk as if you have a hundred billion dollars and you're risking fifty. Right? Like it's it's right, uh, right. You're you'll very quickly kill a company 
Uh, um, either way, and the one thing for me, you know, we work, we do have some larger clients, but a lot of our clients are not early stage, but they're 250 plus employees, pre-IPO sort of companies. And I often tell them like, you're giving away your advantage if you don't do this, right? Like everyone says, startups have the advantage. They can move fast. They can do all these things. That's true. But you're not, you're you're throwing away the advantage if you're going to say, we're going to blindfold ourselves and then hope the, you know, Microsofts of the world will also blindfold themselves and we'll all just kind of like stumble around in the dark, right? Like, yeah. Why? Why would you do that? (laughs) Like we could move so much faster if we knew what was actually true about our market um, and make that a reality that the whole disruption theory, like your products probably by definition, if you're an existing market, it's worse than the alternative, but you're trying to find this seam where you can, uh, where you can enter the market and disrupt it. But if you're saying, well, let's tie our hands behind our back and make sure that our understanding or the asymmetry of information is something that is just as bad for us as a company with 40,000 employees where people don't even know who to go to for this information, right? Like, don't give up that advantage. Uh, Your chances of actually succeeding are much higher if you continue this work. And like I said, I, I would be shocked if 90% or more, 95% or more of the successful startups pursue something like a Steve Blank, who is at Stanford, who pitches very similar things that we do for early stage startups. Get outside the building, talk to buyers, don't make decisions based on whether or not they say they would buy, but are will they actually commit, right? Uh, don't build right. until you know that people are going to buy it and not that they think it's a cool idea. Um, the best startups do this stuff. And it's just a tragedy that at a certain point, it stops and people start relying on internal rumor <laughs> to decide how right. things changed. And any good you know, B2B startup is going to take 10, 12, 15 years in most cases to develop into its, you know, its true form. And if you think that the market's going to look the same as when you started it 10 years later, it's not, there's no, (laughs) right. Nothing, nothing uh, lasts 10 years without significant change. So uh, continuing to think, well, it worked for us then, um, let's, you know, define insanity as just keep doing the same thing, even though it's not working anymore because it worked before when really right. it's, let's, let's update our own operating system with what is real now <laughs> and pursue that. I think there's so many good things there. I mean, you know, one is, is trying to just do the same things that they used to work and then they stop. The other is it works so well, we quit doing it. I think that happens all the time as, as companies grow. And that the market definitely does change yeah. uh, over time. It's and fun. yeah, complexity kills so many companies. I mean, just that kills growth. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that, that just stops is, is things do get more complex as it gets bigger. And nobody just calls a timeout and says, okay, we've got to simplify this and get back to, to basics because we're doing all this other stuff now. And we've lost 
what really works inside all of that stuff. Yeah, it's funny when you say it works so well, we stopped doing it. That I don't think anyone ever vocalizes <laughs> it that way, but we do. No, work. no, they don't. We run into plenty of founders as well that say, I know the buyer. I know this stuff. And you probably did three, four years ago. Um, yep. Now you're talking to your best customer who is an early adopter. And if you go ask them and say, how should we talk to our new prospects? They're going to say, tell them you're going to break stuff. Tell them you're going to change the world. Tell them you're going to put a dent in the universe. And it's all about <laughs> revolution. And then this buyer, yeah. mainstream buyer is like, I want to keep my job. <laughs> right, right. I want safety and security. I don't want all that. Right. And so you can take what they tell you because they're your best customer. And oftentimes that is who executives are talking to. Whoever today is their revenue engine who keeps the lights on. Um, and, and they'll say, well, you should build this stuff and you should talk about it this way. And then, and then you run with it, right? And then you're like, well, why is it not working? Well, because your buyer now wants things that that don't look anything like your original buyer. That doesn't mean you have to lose your original buyers, although in many cases, nah. early adopters may churn and they're going to go find some other newfangled thing. But you're not going to grow a massively successful company on the back of early adopters. It's such a small, minute group of tinkerers that you're just, it's not going to, it's not going to play out well if you say, I know my buyer, they're early adopters and all of a sudden we're out of them. And back to the point of like the bowling analogy, right? Like your early adopter is not trusted by your uh, next buyer, right? You have to go, yeah. you have to go through the process so that, so that the people who are, your referenceable customers are not that early adopter to your mainstream buyer, or that also is going to kill, you know, if you don't kill it by messaging wrong to them to begin with <laughs> uh, as a sales rep, putting them in the same room with these guys that want to talk about breaking stuff, um, they're going to turn tail and run. So a whole lot of yeah. reasons why to avoid that trap of thinking your best customer who is your out? Who is an outlier already uh, by very nature of being best anything? Um, but they also just don't look and feel anything like where you need to go next. If you could sum up the relationship between sales and marketing in one word, what would that be? And then what could it be in one word? Um, strained. I think that's what comes to mind to me. Yeah. Like. Everyone wants it to work. It's sort of like a marriage on the rocks. Right? Like it's not, the, it's not, you're not at the point, hopefully, unless you have hit that 18 month mark where they start going for each other's jugulars. They mm -hmm. want it to work. They know that they have to make it work to have the symbiotic relationship necessary to be successful, but it's, but it's uh, it's strained. There's there's this constant tension between two organizations that, when they're in sync, man, they can do damage. But if they're not, if that strain exists and people don't trust implicitly what the other side is doing or saying is happening, right? I see this too. Like CROs will come to marketing and say, "This is what's happening." 
I think that there's a problem with our position, right? And then marketing yeah. immediately thinks, well, you're not staying on message and you're blowing it and you guys aren't pitching right and you hired the wrong sales reps because they didn't come from this industry and you know all the other reasons why it's the other side's fault. So I I think my mission is to make it harmonious, right? Like if you, uh, there's the word, I love that. And it, by harmonious, I mean like you're not singing the same note, right? You're singing two yeah. notes, man, they sound good together. But if you don't, yes. oof, you know, it's uh, if you're pitchy, the things get really weird. But if you can come together sort of in a harmonious way, all of a sudden, like your win rates start going up. Your churn rates of existing customers goes down. You're filling the pipeline because people are talking about you in market, whether you're there or not. Like it, it's a it's an awesome thing to see where all of a sudden inbounds become a real thing, and like you're hearing from people who say, "I was told to call you guys because you've done great things, and your name precedes you." Um, no seller is going to pass up that chance to sell in that environment. I was a seller, like I said, early days. Yeah. I sold DSL to to businesses when high-speed internet didn't exist. And all you had to do was walk down the street and you got contracts stuffed in your pockets, right? Like <laughs> that kind of, that, that's like the ultimate like product market fit, right? <laughs> Where it's like, right. oh, you go from dial-up or a, or a T1 line to like, now we have high-speed internet. Like that's the goal is to like get this relationship in such a way that the that the um, information flows freely between the two and you hit this product market fit that's so elusive um, and people oftentimes think they have it when they haven't yet because uh, they see some early yep. signs. Like actually getting pr- product market fit is I think the only way you can have the true like flywheel that people really want to talk about where it just kind of builds upon itself. Um, but until you're harmonious as a group saying like, we all trust each other. Um, we have the buyer as an arbiter um, that helps us point to the North star of what truth is. Then all of a sudden actual problems and issues in either group can be open for discussion uh, without contention um, and addressed by either side without them saying, well, I don't trust your motives. I don't know if you're, I don't know if you're here uh, to help me or to hurt me. Um, and as soon as you have that strained relationship, it, your chances of commercial success drop dramatically. Well, where can people learn more about you and about aggregate insights online? Yeah. So, uh, uh, you can always reach out to us on our website, aggregateinsights.com. We have aggregateinsights.com forward slash podcast for your listeners to go to. Um, we have some good resources. One of the things that we're sharing very freely, because I do feel like what we do is not a secret. It's hard. You have to learn it. But we share a lot of information about how we do it. If you want to sh- give it a shot yourself, we have a comprehensive guide on how to do win-loss analysis uh, up for listeners to to pay attention to um, aggregate. Sometimes people spell that wrong. So A-G-G-R-E-G-A-T-E insights.com. They can always reach out directly to me, uh, B Jensen, J-E-N-S-E-N at aggregateinsights.com.
Outstanding. We'll make sure and link all of that in the, the show notes and, uh, and also the, the win-loss analysis. We'll get a, a link to that as, as well. So that'd be a, a great resource for the listeners. Sure. Well, Brady, really enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks for being on Task Fuel. As did I. Thanks, Jeff, for having me. Thanks again, Brady, for coming on the show and sharing your insights and resources. Now, I don't know about y'all, but when I was talking to Brady, the real question in the back of my head was, I got to have this. How can I get my hands on it? Do you think that too? I signed up for the waiting list a couple of months back over at Aggregate Insights. And, you know, it is finally, finally, finally here. It's launching out limited release. So get over there, get signed up, get yourself on there. It is unreal. Uh, to learn more about Aggregate Insights and Brady, of course, uh, and get your hands on the solution, go to aggregateinsights.com. They are doing some great, great work over there. And when I first heard about it, like I said, I was just like, I've got to get hold of this. It's not a nice to have. This is a must have. It is great stuff. And as always, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. And of course, remember we're on YouTube as well. Full episodes, shorts, training, lots of mess ups for me, funny stuff. But uh, go check that out and subscribe and share wherever it is that you're listening and share. Help your friends. It elevates your status as someone in the know and you know, tells them about something really cool too and, and a cool new solution with Aggregate Insights. Everyone who subscribes this week gets a Super Bowl snack helmet. It's not just a hat. It is a party on your head with compartments for chips and dip and maybe a beer or two. So just try not to headbutt anyone in excitement. Well, join us next Tuesday where our founder is Michael Kem Leitner, founder of two SaaS companies in the marketing and social media space. We'll be talking about creative ways to scale up without outside capital and how to gracefully transition from an engaged operator to an empowered leader. Something that I think every founder struggles with. Michael has got this down and some great, great lessons in how he made that happen. And the next week on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series, we have Kenneth Burke, VP of Marketing for Text Request. He has fueled growth from startups to billion-dollar enterprises, and he'll be here to share his secrets on mastering SaaS marketing and content creation. He's done over a 1,000 content pieces. Crazy stuff. Really, really good. So I will see you next time. And uh, maybe, who knows, maybe see you at the Super Bowl. Want to come over Super Bowl party? Let's do it. As always, enjoy the journey. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to SAS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.